name is Dr. Chayaliba Kobernek, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Mindful Woman Mothers podcast. I'm a clinical psychologist and a mother to four delicious girls. Here, we'll explore what it means to be a mindful woman through every stage of motherhood. Welcome, welcome. On today's podcast, I am so excited to be speaking with Kristen Burgess. Kristen is the creator of Mama Baby Birthing, an online natural childbirth class that offers unique personal support. She has served moms and babies as a childbirth coach and through her website, naturalbirthandbabycare.com for over 15 years. She's a wife and the mother of eight, all born naturally, and loves to share proven practical information on pregnancy, birth, and parenting right up our, our alley. And that's why I've been looking forward to chatting today. So welcome. Thank you, Kaya. It's so wonderful to be here. So great. I'm excited to have you. Can you, so I, I, I listened to a little bit about what you talk about and I've, um, and I've, and I've taken your course and I want to hear from you. Can you help us understand what is natural birthing? What does that mean to you? I think natural birth means different things to different women. So it's a good question to start with. To me, natural birth means not just a vaginal birth, but also a birth that doesn't involve medications and doesn't involve a lot of medical intervention. And why do you think that's important? I feel like, especially now, we are so blessed to live in a time where we are really beginning to understand not just the mechanics of birth, but also to really understand the hormonal interplay that goes into birth. There's just so much. It's so, it's a beautiful symphony. And I feel like we've known for a long time that natural birth is beneficial to mothers and babies, but especially now we're really beginning to understand the nuances and intricacies. And it's just so important because it gives moms and babies a beautiful start when that process is honored. I think it's the best for our babies because we know that babies nurse better when there haven't been any medications and when there hasn't been a lot of like IV fluids loading their birth weight or anything like that. So we know that it's better for babies, but part of my heart is really for moms. And I feel like women who feel like they have a voice in their birth process, who feel like they're able to honor what their bodies need to do and get the support that they need during birth. And then they're able to actually live out that hormonal blueprint that we have with in us to bond with their babies. They just feel stronger. They're less likely to struggle with postpartum depression and all those sorts of things. And I feel like it's, it's a time, a transition into motherhood that benefits a woman and her family for the rest of her life. Wow. Okay. So you brought up a few really important pieces there. I think, um, in terms of why is natural birth important? You're saying it's not just physiologically or medically affecting people, but it also affects us in terms of postpartum depression. It affects us in terms of, like you said, also women having a voice in their pregnancy, in their pregnancy and their birth experience. Can you speak more about those different, about those different pieces that yes, there's, there's a medical piece that's valuable here in terms of like how we're setting our babies up and our bodies up for the future. But there's also these other pieces that are affected by having birth with intervention. Yeah, I think 
Firstly, I think that preparation for birth starts during pregnancy because that's how a woman feels like she has the strength and the voice and also just the practical skills to get through childbirth because it's definitely something that's intense. And so when a mom does that, when she takes care of herself physically and prepares, she has a, she's healthier, she has a healthier baby. So physiologically, you know, that sets everybody up for the best start. And also it sets, sets you up for a better start breastfeeding, because when you have the nutrient reserves and everything that you need, breastfeeding goes more smoothly. Um, but also part of that preparation is this mental and emotional preparation, because we sent, I think that in, in the modern day, we look at it as kind of the birth as a means to a baby. And some people who have a natural birth, maybe look at the natural birth in and of itself as like, that's the goal, but really, and I, and of course our babies are a beautiful blessing, but part of what it is, is it's a transition for us as women into motherhood or into motherhood. Again, I've had eight babies and I can say that I I've grown through each of those pregnancies and each of those births has taught me something and made me into the woman that I am today. So I, I do feel like when we have a natural birth, we're looking at physiological, physical benefits. We know that again, I mean, there's so much that we're learning is so exciting. You know, we know that what we do during pregnancy can impact our babies on an epigenetic level. So there's definitely that aspect, but there's also this aspect of it is, it is the journey and the transition into motherhood. And when you make that transition with confidence and even ultimately, if the birth requires some level of assistance, a woman who goes into birth prepared and aware and feeling confident in herself is able to, to collaborate with her care providers and feels like she's been heard and that she has, you know, that she's a player in this process rather than just somebody who's having something done to her. It's not so much that a doctor or a midwife becomes the savior or even saves her baby from herself, which I feel like is sometimes a dichotomy that's set up. But instead, the woman feels like she's cooperating and she's part of it. And she's much more likely, again, even if you need intervention, much more likely to come through it feeling like this experience has been empowering. My voice was heard. And it just, again, it goes back to that confidence and that that belief in yourself and in your body and a stronger bond with your baby. I think that all moms can bond with our babies. We're not geese who have one chance at imprinting and then it's gone. But women who are struggling with feeling like, did I do something wrong or did something go wrong, who have that confidence shaken or who believe that their voices weren't heard, feel more timid or even, you know, they grieve in ways that maybe culture tells them they can't grieve in. And so they just struggle more. So when you give a woman this solid foundation or when you as a woman are able to say, I want this solid foundation and I'm going to do this preparation and be ready, birth can be unexpected for sure. We all know that. But it just sets you up for a much stronger voice and a much smoother transition. And I believe even a hard birth can be a learning experience. But when a woman goes in prepared, there's just it, it, it's more empowering to her. And that I like to emphasize that that's best for the baby and for the family, because some people think that's selfish, but it's not because a strong, healthy, confident mother is better for everybody, including society and the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is how birth, you know, starts to actually have ripple effects for, you know, how society is structured and how women are treated and how families function. Absolutely. But so you brought up, I think, an important point about um, that how a woman is treated 
during her birth process it has a major impact on how she experiences her postpartum period. Um, can you speak more to that? You said something about, you know, how she collaborates with her providers, whether she feels like her voice is heard, um, whether she feels like she's having a procedure done to her rather than her being the birthing person with people there to support her. Can you talk about that more? Yeah. So I think that anytime we undermine a woman's confidence, that's, you know, that's, there's a ripple effect to that. Uh, Something that I was sharing recently was, you know, let's say that you're in the kitchen getting dinner ready and your knife slips. And so you cut yourself and you just ignore it, you know, and this is a sharp kitchen knife. And what's going to happen is that cut is probably not going to be pretty. There's going to be infection and it's just going to drag on. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. Or even if it heals, it's not going to heal well. But if you stop for a minute, if you go clean it up, if you put on a Band-Aid, there's still a wound there. It may still hurt, but it's going to heal much better. And eventually it's going to fade away over time. And I think that we don't like to think of emotions and, and that sort of thing as being that way, but it really is the same thing. So when a woman feels like she's silenced and when she feels like she wasn't listened to, she wasn't heard, she wasn't respected, or she was just pushed into something that maybe she didn't even understand and everybody is telling her, you have a healthy baby. That's, you know, she, and she may even tell herself that because she's trying to ease that, but it's kind of like, you know, you cut yourself while you're making dinner and you just ignore it. Well, it's, it's not pretty. It just sits there and eventually it does heal, but it undermines everything for a woman. And we even see this with women because women remember their births for decades until they die. Even women who are struggling with dementia can often clearly recall their births. So you can talk to a woman in a nursing home who's struggling with dementia, and she can often give you an almost photographic picture of what her baby's births were like. It makes that much of an impression on us. And I think that one of the things that we see is we see older women when a young, you know, when a birthing age woman like we are comes and says, oh, we want to have a natural birth. You'll even see this with older family members. They'll sometimes tut tut it or even be really negative about it. And they'll talk about how their doctor saved the baby and this, that, and the other. And in many ways, I feel like what we see in that is it's not at all about us birthing. It's much more about them. And I feel like it's that bit of a wounding inside of them that still wonders, did it have to happen this way? And so that comes out when, because it's the only way that it can come out is they feel almost a sense of guilt. And I feel like women need to be free of that. I mean, there are women who definitely choose to have full intervention hospital birth, but I've even talked to a lot of those women who come to me after two or three babies and say, I just, something needs to be different. Even though I signed up for that the first few times I realized afterwards that that wasn't right. So we see this, it does ripple throughout a woman's life. And definitely in the immediate postpartum, when you have a woman, again, even that woman who said, I'm going into the hospital, I want an epidural, I'm going to do whatever the doctor says. Even those women often come out. I talked to a woman on the phone just a few weeks ago who said, I, that's what I wanted. That's what I signed up for. And if you look at my birth, I had a vaginal birth and everything went well, but she said it was, it was horribly traumatic for me. And there's nobody that I can tell that to because nobody understands that. And that has, you know, she's, her child is now, I think four or five and they want another child, but that experience was so difficult for her 
that they've hesitated to have another child and how many women like her are there. And, and she even had trouble talking to me. Like it took her a moment to be able to bring the words out. We just sat with dead air on the line for a bit. Cause I was holding space for her, but she couldn't even figure out how to voice these things because women are not able to voice these things. And I think as a society, we're foolish if we think that doesn't impact a woman. So in the immediate postpartum, a mom can struggle with more than the baby blues. She can struggle with postpartum depression. And we have a word, which is not usually applied, but I think it's a good word to apply. It's called disenfranchised grief, which is when you grieve in a way that's not societally acceptable. And there's many situations where grief can be disenfranchised, but I definitely believe that this is one of them. So a woman isn't allowed. The only thing she's allowed to say is, thank God I have a healthy baby. And, you know, how does that impact us when we can't grieve or even have the space to be allowed because grieving that your birth didn't turn out the way that you were. doesn't mean that you're a bad mother. It doesn't mean that you're not grateful for your baby. It doesn't mean that you're not, you know, head over heels in love with your baby. It just means that you need to grieve this experience. So I think that it's really profoundly impactful for women when they don't have that space or when they're not even given the opportunity to have the birth experience that they want in the first place. They're not even given the opportunity to try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we kind of talked about this a little before, but what do you think contributes to somebody who has like, like you said, a perfectly, you know, good quote unquote birth by hospital standards, what leads a woman like that to experience it as traumatic? I think it's big. Part of it is because a hospital birth tends to be a lot like an assembly line. So, you know, you're just put in and they have their procedures and their boxes and we're, you know, we're not, women are not airplanes. You can't just necessarily go down the checklist and prepare us for takeoff. We're human beings. And so every woman experiences birth differently. And for many women, I think part of it is they go in and they've at least figured it out. They're, they're, they're coping they're doing well because they've ex- they're experiencing early labor. Some women who go in, we can talk about women who are induced. That's a whole nother ball game. But women who, you know, they go in, they're coping, and then all of a sudden they're in. And firstly, there's a hormonal shift that happens when you go in because uh, because moving, even if even if you intellectually know going to the hospital is safe, this is still a transition that your body perceives as stressful. And that can impact the hormones of birth, which are, there's an intricate interplay. And when we interrupt that, it can slow labor down and that sort of thing, because adrenaline gets activated when you think there's fear and early in labor, adrenaline acts to slow labor down. Now, if you go to the hospital right before you're birthing your baby, adrenaline will speed labor up because that's what your body says. That's the, what's going to be safest is you birth the baby, pick the baby up and run away from the mountain lions, you know? But early in labor, your body says, let's stop labor so you can run away from the mountain lions. So that is, I mean, this is a physiological effect that really has nothing to do with the modern day or our modern conception of a hospital. So a woman who may be coping well and feel like things are progressing gets to the hospital and things slow down, or they, you know, they hook you up to a fetal monitor and you're stuck in the bed. So you may have been coping well by standing and swaying or by walking or by moaning. And that's another thing. You get to the hospital, maybe it's not socially acceptable to be quite so vocal anymore. So there are many things that all of a sudden restrict a woman who may have been coping well or slow things down and then interventions happen. So the hospital feels like we can deal with anything because we have medications and procedures and this, that, and the other to handle it. 
but all of a sudden you feel like you went from coping and being an active part of this to all these things are being done to you. And some things, especially that labor slowdown and then, oh, we'll just start Pitocin. But then we've completely altered labor. We've literally short-circuited the normal hormonal flow of labor. And so all of a sudden contractions that a woman felt like she was dealing with, she's having unnaturally longer, stronger contractions. And that it's what they call the cascade of interventions. And even if you felt like that's what you were signing up for, experiencing it and just all of a sudden you're, you're literally passive while all these things are done to you. And while what was a normal thing is altered into something that I won't say abnormal, but it's more intense than it would have been naturally. So then again, you're just stuck. And what if something happens? What if they decide we need to put an internal monitor in baby or things aren't progressing? So we're going to turn the, turn up the volume on the Pitocin, so to speak. And so it just, it becomes this thing where you went from coping to you're not. And then if you have a woman who signed up for, I'm just going to do what the doctor says and agreed to an induction when her body and her baby aren't ready. Well, then there are problems from the outset that leads to that cascade of interventions. And this mom never even has a chance to figure out how do I do it naturally? And there's all the stress that goes with the possible failed induction or hours of long, strong contractions that still ultimately end up in a cesarean or something. And so even that woman who expected the hospital experience finds that it becomes this really impersonal experience where it's kind of taken from her and her body. And there's, there's the worry about her baby that is iatrogenic, which means doctor caused in many cases. And, but you're supposed to believe that the doctor saved you. And most women there, you know, that cognitive dissonance is there. How do we deal with that? Mm -hmm. Can you explain more when you talked about that, even if I signed up for the hospital experience, once I'm in it, it can be much more intense than natural labor. That's a little counterintuitive. Isn't the hospital supposed to make birth easier? Yeah, I think, well, I think that we think, okay, well, it's okay if they do Pitocin because then I'll get my epidural and I won't feel it. And some women will talk about, so this is many, 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 many years ago when I was first having my babies, you know, I had a friend who that's what she, you know, we got the Pitocin, got the epidural. I laughed through labor. And then months later, you know, we're sitting there with like our first babies. I think I was on my second baby and this was her first baby and she was newly pregnant again. And she's like, you know, but still, I, I mean, I was able to laugh because I didn't feel pain, but I still don't want my next baby's birth to be like that. Like she was starting to look back and go, they're just, and there was, I think part of it for her was at the time that she was delivering her first son. Yeah, she wasn't feeling pain, but she also, she didn't really feel to push. You know, she had to be directed to push. The doctor had to be really hands-on to help maneuver her baby out. And he wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he was a big, huge baby or anything. He was kind of an average sized baby. And she just looking back on the experience it, it took away the pain, but it also took away her ability to really actively participate in the birth. She was almost a spectator. And I think many women end up feeling like that. That's the women who come to me even after two or three hospital births and say, I just want it to be different this time as even if you have an epidural, there's something that's, that's taken out when you're not the one experiencing it or when 
you're having to be told to push because you literally can't feel what's going on. And then we know, again, going back to baby, that babies who have gone through a really medicated labor, they don't nurse quite as well. They're just, I mean, any nurse on the hospital maternity ward can tell you this baby had medication during labor and this baby didn't. And it's not that that's something that babies can't overcome. We can successfully breastfeed after we've had an epidural or a medicated birth or even a cesarean, but you can tell the difference. And so then, then there's that golden hour experience too. There's that sense. I think it's maybe the sense of detachment and it's just all done to me and our bodies aren't, and maybe there's something biological or physiological there. Like our bodies aren't expecting that. So there are cues that are missed. And a woman can ultimately feel that emotionally. And there's that question in her mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we've talked about why natural birth is valuable. How can a woman help herself to birth naturally? Is there anything we can yeah, do like, to make that happen? Yeah. Like I said before, I think a big part of it is preparation during pregnancy I'm like, you know, I have eight kids, so my life has to be super practical because how do you manage all these kids? But even before I felt really practical, but one of the things that I learned across the course of having my babies, which my first baby was a natural birth, but I often think it was like sheer willpower. You know, I was just, I was a young mom. I was stubborn and I was going to have a natural birth regardless of what anybody else said. And thankfully I had a midwife who was really supportive because nobody else was, um, But I learned, you know, that, okay, when I got into birth and I got through it at the end, I was like, well, I had her naturally, but I don't know that that felt very natural. And so that kind of led me on a quest to figure out how, you know, how do I prepare better? And what I discovered was that you really can prepare. So part of it is really practical. It's that I'm going to make sure that I eat well. And I'm going to make, I like using the word movement more than exercise, because when we think about exercise, you know, we're like sweating to the oldies and or doing something for weight. And that's not really what movement during pregnancy is about. I mean, it's good to get your, you know, to get your heart beating and to feel good and active and just to physically enjoy that part of your body, like walking or dancing, any of that is great. But also part of it is stretching and feeling and experiencing being in your body. A lot of women, you know, we've kind of grown up ashamed of our bodies even. Um, and, ashamed of the feminine parts of our body. Like just think about the commercials that we see in the ads that we see as young, young women about menstruation and that sort of thing. It's almost this shame, this fear of being a woman. And so when you're pregnant, then, you know, it's just, and it's not anything that's like public or it's just really you getting to know your body, feeling your body. I share with women that, you know, take time when, you know, even when you're going to the bathroom, just take a minute to experience what it feels like to have a tense pelvic floor and then what it feels like to relax. Or I like the word soften, soften your pelvic floor, just become aware of that. And then throughout the day, become aware of how you're breathing. So how you're breathing when, you know, we're just talking and we're relaxed, how you're breathing when you're, you know, when you're in a rush, you're trying to get somewhere or when you're chasing a toddler or something, just pay attention to your different types of breathing, because that's a really practical exercise that day by day you realize, when I'm out of breath, I feel this way. And this is how I get back in, you know, it's just all that stuff where we're looking at practically just more awareness and being more in tune with our bodies. And I also feel like this is something I've started teaching recently because women will tell me, Kristen, I don't have any instinct and I just don't feel in tune. And so I say, you know, when your body tells you 
I need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, or I'm thirsty, get a drink because we as moms, we don't do that. (laughs) It's like, I felt thirsty an hour ago. And now I'm, you know, I'm so thirsty, but I don't have time. So take, you know, take that 30 seconds to listen to and honor your body. And when you do that across the course of a pregnancy, you grow your, your confidence in your voice. So those are really practical ways just to physically take care of yourself and listen to yourself. And then also, I believe that women need to learn birthing skills. So labor is intense. It's unlike, and this is something else that women, you know, when they think, oh, I'm just going to do what the doctor says. Well, labor is really unlike anything that we've ever done. It's just a different level. Uh, And you can't practice beforehand, but you can do a lot to condition yourself. You can learn skills. So that's everything practical, like learning different positions, learning, breathing, learning, relaxation techniques. I like to say, this is sometimes talking to daddies too, but you know, you have a toolkit and when you have a toolkit and you're doing a job, you might pull out different tools for different times. And so labor is just like that. When you have a wide variety of tools in your toolkit, including usually a partner who's help, if that's helpful or a doula, uh, but then you can deal with things in different ways. So as labor moves along and progresses, what worked early on may not work or something may feel really overwhelming, but a change of positions in between the next two contractions can really help. So just having that practical information. And then part of it is, of course, the mental preparation. And part of that's intellectual and making the right choices and learning about women who understand interventions when they're commonly used, when they really need to be used, which are sometimes two different things. And what happens if you wait? Having that intellectual information helps you have a voice and makes a natural birth more likely. But also part of it is just, I I fully believe that labor is, or pregnancy and birth are, you know, they're a mental, emotional, spiritual journey on a level. We know that human beings have a spiritual component to them. And so that's going to look different for different women, but it really is a journey. It's a transformation from who you were before to a mother. And you don't lose the woman that you were before, but that woman becomes, you know, more aspects of you come forth. And so I think part of it is just doing that journey, prayer or journaling or whatever it is that resonates with you and preparing for that transition. And some, some cultures support that and some don't. So, you know, take what your culture supports and then also what you need to do because all of that helps you. And then it helps to, to do some fear clearing, like considering fears. I think the most powerful way to, to clear fears and to manage expectations is to say, if this happened, how would I handle it? Like I want to have a natural birth, but what if I end up needing a cesarean? Oftentimes when you consider that firstly, that I've done everything that I possibly can and that I've spoken up for myself And then this is what it would say about me as a woman or as a mother and how it might impact that. When you do that mental exercise beforehand, you can go into labor with more peace because there's not that huge unknown. So there are practical things and there are spiritual things. And I think all of it, you know, pregnancy is a gift to a personal development gift, really, but it's a gift, a journey where we get to grow and we get nine months for a reason. You might be listening going, oh my gosh, Kristen, that sounds overwhelming, But we get nine months for a reason because it's, you know, it's a journey along that time to get ready for that, for the birth and what comes beyond. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask next is, you know, um, I think a lot of people are told to take a childbirth education course in your last trimester, you know, learn some breathing techniques. Do you think that's 
enough or what do you think is really necessary? And necessary is a strong word, but what do you think is important for women to be doing throughout their pregnancy? In a, like more than just that standard third trimester, Lamaze, whatever. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the ideal would be to have a mom find me, you know, ideally in her first trimester, but definitely in her second trimester, because I do believe that that nutrition and movement and even stress, I didn't even talk about this, but kind of stress relief and stress care for busy moms or moms to be is really important. So she has time to set that foundation. I have found with myself and with many moms that women start naturally turning their minds more towards birth at, you know, 24 to 28 weeks. So that I think is an ideal time to really start thinking about birth. I, I think I get a lot of women who come to me in like 38 weeks. They're like, Kristen, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, this baby is coming. What do I do? Um, so I even have a crash course and crash course in mama baby birthing where I tell women, okay, this is what you need to go through. And I'll have women start at 36 weeks, but I really think it's better to start at like 30, 32 weeks at the latest, because it gives you time to go through that practical stuff to learn about, okay, interventions and the mechanics of birth and birth skills to have some time to practice those skills. But it also gives you time to do that emotional, mental, spiritual processing that you may really, you know, you may not have ever thought about that before, or even starting to go through your childbirth class lessons can bring things up and you want some time to work through that. So I really feel like it's ideal for women to give themselves 10 or 12 weeks to, to get through that. And also if you're interested in anything like perennial massage, um, which is a whole nother ball game that we can talk about, but perennial massage, it's best to start that like around 32 weeks. So you want to give yourself that time. So it's a little bit earlier than someone might think they need to do that. So it sounds like there's some just like information to know about birth and interventions and things like that. But then there's also this work that we might want to do um, for ourselves. Can you touch on, you said there's like birth skills. What, what, what are, what does that mean? So birth skills would be things like understanding different positions and how different positions help in labor, like being stuck on your back in bed with monitor strapped to you might a feel overwhelming because literally the, the pain of you know, your pelvis with your baby in that position is not the most conducive. So there may be additional pain that comes like baby's back labor might be stronger. A lot of women know what back labor is. So that might just be more uncomfortable and understanding that that might be uncomfortable. And it might also impede my baby's ability to rotate because babies are not passive during birth. Babies are active and they're rotating and doing things. And sometimes when a woman has a quote unquote stall, what may actually be happening is that her baby is trying to get in a better position for birth. So it's not that her body needs to be opening more or doing anything. It's that baby needs to do something. And so when a woman understands that she may understand that a more upright position, for example, might help or sitting on a birth ball might help. Sometimes women in hospital rooms, I'm going to be in a tiny hospital room. What can I do? But a birth ball is relatively compact, can come into a hospital room and sit right beside the bed, or even getting up and going to the bathroom, standing in the shower, 
or sitting on the uh, toilet, you know, those are positions that can help open women up. So that practical, those skills are understanding things like position and how it impacts baby. And then other things like if it feels like baby's descent is really slow. Well, one thing that we can think about, even people listening, you can pinch your fingers, your thumb and forefinger together as hard as you can. And there's not a lot of movement, but if you let up the pressure, even a little bit, your fingers will slide over each other. And sometimes that's all the room that baby needs. And so when a woman understands how position can free up that room or uh, how something like having her husband or doula press inward at the top of her hips to help kind of open the bones a little bit that can help there. So there are just a number of different techniques that can help a woman cope with the pain or even create more room. And so those would be this, those would be those practical skills or breathing, low moans, um, learning how to soften your pelvic tissues. Those would all be practical, excuse me, skills that help during the birth. Okay. So a lot of that has to do with movement positioning. If a woman hasn't been preparing throughout her birth, she's been laying on the couch with her feet up, (laughs) um, and now she's coming into birth. Is it how realistic is it for her to be able to do these different positions, hold herself upright during labor? Um, you know, doesn't it seem like she's going to have to um, kind of do whatever she's, you know, she's not that, she's not, uh, she hasn't been preparing her body in that way. How is she going to do it? Yeah. Well, I think one thing to remember is that birth is designed to work. So we know that, you know, we've, we're all here because our foremothers were able to give birth. Um, in all kinds of incredible circumstances, really. And we also know that, you know, if you look at even the World Health Organization's statistics, they say that a quote unquote necessary rate of cesarean is somewhere between five and 15%, um, which is, that's probably a little high because if you look at uh, well-established birth centers that have been operating for decades, like the farm in Tennessee in the United States, their cesarean rate is usually like two to 4%. But still, even if you look at the World Health Organization's number and say 10%, then we know that 90% of women, you know, are going to be successful at having at least a vaginal birth. I don't know that those statistics take into, you know, did a woman have an epidural or not, but that essentially statistics are in our favor regardless of the circumstances. And even if a woman has spent, you know, most of her time on the couch with her feet up, she may not be able to hold herself up. But I also believe that a woman who's really fit when she's in the middle of her birthing time is probably not going to hold herself up or support herself super well. So that's where a tool like a birth ball or sitting on the toilet or having your husband right there um, able to support you or hold you up is good. Hands and knees is a good position. It, this one sounds a little counterintuitive, but sidelining is also a good position. Uh, even for labor, it can cause labor to slow down a little bit, but sometimes, especially some women are like, Kristen, my problem isn't that labor is slow. It's that it's fast. What do I do? Cause some women are efficient birthers. And so sideline can be a good position, but that's something to remember is that, you know, someone needs to hold your leg up, but women can even birth pretty efficiently in a sideline position because it's a pretty straight shot out for babies. So it's, Birth doesn't require a lot of acrobatics. I do think it requires a level of stamina, but it's not necessarily that a woman has a great amount of physical strength. It's even much more in labor. You may need stamina in the sense that you need nutrition, like you need sugar. So in pregnancy, I tell moms, you know, don't have tons of sugar 
But during birth, so I remember one of my midwifery teachers was like, it's better to go down the hall and get a soda out of a vending machine and give that mom the soda so that she has some sugar than to deny her nutrition during labor because you're being picky about it. Because again, you know, it's just like we think about a woman running a marathon or people running a marathon. They have those little stations where they pick up a cup of something and they take a drink and then they keep running because I think in sports, they say like they, they bonk or they boink or something like they're hitting a wall. Their body just runs out of steam. And so during another thing hospitals do is like ice chips are kind of synonymous with labor, which is silly, but you may actually need physical nourishment and then you get some glucose back in your body and you're able to do it. So those are things to remember is labor isn't skills are good to have. And I think it's definitely best to be prepared but women are, you know, women are designed to give birth, created to give birth, regardless of her worldview. And there are basic positions that can help a woman give birth without requiring like massive amounts of physical strength from her. And when we honor a woman's need for some energy, especially if she's had a longer labor, she can make it through. With all that, what would you say are the most important things that you want women to know about pregnancy and birth? Oh man, there are so many things. I think probably the most important thing that at least recently that I've wanted to communicate to women is that you're worth it because I think so many women don't necessarily, they believe that a healthy baby is important and certainly motherhood is a gift and an honor. One of the greatest honors in a woman's life, should she have children, um, it's a blessing to raise our children, but it's not the totality of who we are. And, you know, there will be a mother, maybe a grandmother, and maybe that's what we're looking forward to when our babies are grown as, as the grandbabies. Um, and that service is a beautiful thing. But part of what makes us strong and beautiful women is the vibrancy of who we are completely. And so, yes, having a healthy baby is a beautiful goal. And we, of course, want the honor of raising our children, but also having a healthy mother is a gift to your baby and to your family, to your husband, to your entire family, to your extended family. And so you're worth taking the time. And it's when you hear me talk about it in a podcast, it might sound like a lot, but really it's just minutes a day. And so it's believing that you're worth those minutes a day, believing that you're worth that drink of water or that, you know, that half hour that you, you know, mommy's going to take a nap. Moms all over the world take naps, you know, so I'm going to put my little ones down for a nap and I'm going to have 30 minutes. And it may be that I listen to a pregnancy relaxation, or it may be that I take a few minutes to practice my breathing or experiment with positions when my doors close to see what makes me feel the most open. So it's just believing that you are worth that time and that because when you believe that you're worth that time and that it's a gift to you and your baby and your family, you're more likely to take that time. You're, you give yourself permission. So that's really important. Um, and then let's see, what would I say would be the next thing from there? Because when you believe that it's important, then you, you carve out those little bits of time to really do everything else. Um, I do feel like the practical is important. I guess I would communicate too that even moms who feel like, oh, I've got dietary restrictions or I can't do this and that. I mean, pregnancy, diet, and exercise are not necessarily complicated. I've helped women from literally all over the world with all kinds of dietary guidelines and food allergies and all kinds of things. And everybody can eat healthy. It may look different from one woman to another, but that's okay. 
every culture can support a healthy pregnancy. So even if it may feel overwhelming, you can eat well. And even if you feel if pregnancy is physically difficult for you, there are ways that you can take care of yourself and honor yourself and get ready for a good birth. And then I think the other big piece of advice that I would give is use your voice early and often. So if you're going in for say your early pregnancy and you're going in and your doctor has said, we're going to do the 12 week ultrasound, then ask, why do we do that ultrasound? What information are we going to get? And that ultrasound would be for the nuchal scan, which is a marker, you know, looking for different chromosomal defects. And you might even say, even if you're going to say, okay, to the ultrasound at 20 weeks or 16 to 20 weeks, which is the anatomy scan, a different ultrasound, you might choose to say, you know what, this wouldn't change our decision about this pregnancy. So I don't feel like I need that information. So I'm going to decline. And it's at that point, it's not necessarily emotional. It's just no. So when you use your voice early and often, I say you don't want to be treated. And I think some care providers will treat you like a child during pregnancy. You don't want to be treated like a child, but have that child's curiosity. So when we think about our toddlers and preschoolers, why, 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 why? When we ask questions throughout pregnancy, what you're doing is strengthening your voice and also helping your care provider learn that you're curious, that you're interested, that you are engaged in this process because birth is intense. It's a lot that's coming at you and it can be a time where it can feel scary or intimidating. But when you've used your voice throughout your pregnancy, when you've asked, when you've sought out information, when you've dialogued with your care provider, it's much easier to continue doing that during your birth. And so I think that just growing our voice is really important too. Have you heard women talk about providers not responding well to that? I can imagine a provider saying something like, but this is my recommendation, take it or leave it. Or, um, you know, I'm your doctor and this is what I'm telling you to do. I think that when we have a woman in that situation, we have a couple of choices. One is if it's possible, you may be realizing that this provider is not a good fit for me. And it's way better to realize that early on than later. So if you've got a provider who seems really hostile or patronizing right away, if possible, it may be time to seek another provider. And I think for some women, that's not poss- not a possibility. But many women do have more of a choice. Um, I also think that, you know, we have to remember, too, that when we as women have the ability and the autonomy to choose, so does our provider. So if you were to say, you know, what, I'm not going to be OK with these procedures, technically, your provider has the right to say, OK, well, I think you should seek care elsewhere. And that's piece that we have to make within ourselves. Um, but I have had some women who have had a provider that they feel like I have to use this provider. There is no other option for me. Some women will choose to go unassisted, but many women don't feel comfortable with that. And for that woman, I think there's making peace with talking with the provider. There may be some level of standing up for yourself. Um, I can get you a link to this if you want to put it in the show notes, but I have a podcast episode that I did with a woman named Hannah And she was in that situation where, you know, it was a hospital and the doctor was this way, but she, and she's, I love letting women listen to the podcast because just hearing her say it is really helpful. You know, she found a way to just say, no, I'm, you know, we're not going to do that. No, thank you. And so that just hearing another woman do that and even doing some role-playing can help you stand up. Cause even when a provider seems a little bit like a jerk, 
they'll sometimes back down. And especially again, during labor in a hospital, the reality is, is your doctor is probably not going to be there for most of the labor. Your nurses are going to be who defines the experience more. And so this is a place where, you know, you having your voice and being confident can help with them. And another thing is often when a couple goes into the hospital and they're well-prepared, then the hospital staff will back off a bit. So if you're coping well, because they don't feel like they need to come in and rescue, they don't feel like a lot is going on. So there's more respect. So that's another, you know, another good reason to be well-prepared is because even if you've got a provider who's a little grumpy or has been doing this a long time and wants to do it their way, when they know that you're strong and confident, not necessarily hostile or combative, but you're just, that's why listening to Hannah is really helpful because she's just confident, you know, she's not mean. Um, or bratty. I think I, I tend to err on the side of being a little bit bratty, <laughs> but yeah. So I think it's just part of it is your demeanor and your self-confidence and people will step back a bit because they sense that in you and then your level of preparation. So if you feel like I'm stuck with this provider, who's a little grumpy, a little commercially, then you being well-prepared, they're more likely to say, oh, well, she's handling it well. So I'm just going to kind of let her do it her way. And then there are two, and this is stuff you get into in a birth class, but there are, you know, there are kind of trade-offs here and there. Like I don't want an IV, but I might say, okay, to a HEPLOC, or I don't want fetal monitoring all the time. Can we have the monitor for a certain amount of time? And these would be discussions that you would want to have with your care provider beforehand. But usually there's, you know, there's some wiggle room. And then of course, there's the strategy of, wait to go to the hospital. Don't go too early. And your, your, your labor pattern is more likely to be well-established. Like I was talking beforehand. So when you get there, you know, the baby is coming and there's not time for them to mess with you as much. Um, and, and then too, you've done a lot of it away from people who are going to mess with you. So those are all strategies that can help. Even if you feel like you're stuck with a provider who may not be your first choice. Got it. Thank you so much, Kristen. This was really helpful and really informative. Is there any um, way for people to get in touch with you or find out more about your work? Can you share with us some of your information? Yeah, definitely. So if you're interested in my classes, you can check those out at mamababybirthing.com. That's M-A-M-A, babybirthing.com. And then I've got tons of pregnancy information. I've got my podcast and all of that is available at naturalbirthandbabycare.com, which is a mouthful, but that's my main website. So you can find me there. The contact form is there. If anybody wants to reach out to me, I'm happy to chat. Even I've jumped on the phone with women recently. So I'm happy to hold space for you to share your birth experience and that sort of thing too. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been so much fun, Kaya. Thank you for having me here.